Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it's good to be with you here today. All right, in this podcast, I mainly just wanted to go over some things in my notes, some things I've been thinking about over the past week. Um, in this case, a big one is the election, right? It's, uh, as I record this, November 7th, Saturday um, at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The mainstream media uh, has recently called the election for Joe Biden after a number of days of, of what appears to be obvious shenanigans of vote counting. Um, and everybody sort of picked up on that as the mainstream media is saying so is means, means it's true. So now it's sort of the official propaganda line. Now, if you go against that, now you're the crazy person. And of course, then we're forced to be the crazy people saying, well, I mean, obviously, shouldn't there be a recount? There's mandatory recounts, right? I mean, it's too close of margins. All the shenanigans, the viral videos, the whistleblowers, the clear discrepancies in vote uh, counting and all the obvious stuff that's going on. It's going to go to the courts, right? I think that that's at least going to happen. But the bottom line is we've got two main scenarios that we can game plan and some things that can happen uh, in between. So the game, the first scenario is that it just goes through. The, the, the fix is in and maybe the, the, the deep state and all the New World Order types have so much power that they are able to do all the shenanigans through and get all the, the judges to roll over and everything and Joe Biden becomes president. In that case, you have a 50% of the country, in this case the conservatives, that are righteously angry because they can because the fix is so obvious, right? That's one of the things that you'd hope to believe that even the left can see the obvious theft of this, but don't count on that. And I do think that they probably can in their secret heart. And I even believe that there's like a small percentage, let's call it 2% of the people that were just believed everything that CNN told them for the last four years that, that haven't abandoned CNN yet. Maybe let's call it two, maybe 1.5% saw the obvious fraud and were like, hey, you know, I, I got to switch to another channel because I clearly am not getting the truth here. And they were red-pilled as a result of this, but it's not going to be a big deal. So in that case, the question is, what do the conservatives do in the streets? I'm worried in that case about agent provocateurs, right? Plants or, or false flag things where a crazy conservative does something, which then provokes the other side. And in that case, if Joe Biden actually has the reins of power, then you're going to have, and of course, Trump doing something could exacerbate the whole problem in this case too. Of course, you're going to have, hopefully, the attorney general will release this thing that he's been working on, presumably for the last four years. And that's going to obviously be problematic because they'll need to get as much done in that short time frame, lame duck session as possible. It's for that reason I, I actually think that they're going to try something in the in the interim, that they don't even want to get to that point where there's going to be a traditional lame duck duck session because it in the in the desperation angle, there's either kind of like a 4D chess or a desperation angle for the or probably both more like it for the Democrats because obviously they're desperate. They can't not win. There's too much at stake in terms of people going to jail, the Attorney General Barr, uh, and all that stuff coming out, hopefully or presumably. But even not just that, I mean, all the stuff that could happen if, if Hunter Biden is actually investigated, if we could get, you know, obviously that will never happen if Joe is the president. So there, there's going to be, or at least it'll be whitewashed to the point of nonsense. Um, but if that 
it's not just about crack pipes and, 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 and underage girls or pedophilia. It's about, you know, the espionage and the, all the corruption and stuff like that. That's, that's really got, that's compromised the president of the United States to China and other countries, Russia, et cetera. So now that's a really, really bad thing. So you're going to have righteously indignant Republicans, half the country and where that goes, I don't know. It's going to go to the, the logical outgrowth of that. The best case, one of the scenarios is that they become more and more labeled, again, if Democrats have the reins of power, as the enemies of the state. They, In the next four years, they become the new terrorists, the new domestic terrorists. It's going to shift from the face of Antifa to now it's going to be the, the face of the, the conservatives will be in the mainstream media that uh, uh, really a push to make them be the terrorists. And I'm sure that they're going to have either their agent provocateurs or generally, generally, uh, genuinely true believing conservatives to uh, do that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the scenario in which Trump wins. And, and the court, in other words, what is obviously going to happen or is that unless it's just a complete whitewash is that we do have to go to court here, right? You've got to deal with the obvious instances of corruption at the very least. You have to have an obvious recount and you've got to let people look at those votes. And if they can whitewash that and that doesn't happen, then you're going to have a real big problem from, from the conservatives. And maybe that's what they're going to try to push. I'm not sure. But it, let's just assume that they do, that there's still enough freedom left to where you actually have a recount, the, it's actually exposed, and they have to have Donald, they, then they announce Donald Trump is actually the president. Now, in that scenario, I like to call that the Dana Coverstone scenario, because although I think that Dana Coverstone and his uh, dreams or whatever, you know, I, I still kind of hold out, I won't say hope for them. I still, I do think that they're, uh, less likely based on some issues. Like he did say something was going to happen on October 31st. A rock was going to hit the sea. And uh, I don't know, you know, just some, now that could have been allegorical, but I hate to be in a position where I'm trying to like now apologize for it. It's like, Oh, the rock is actually, you know, metaphorical, or maybe a rock really did hit, or, you know, I don't want to be there. But one interesting thing, the reason I call that the scenario in which Trump wins the Dana Coverstone scenario is because he painted a picture in which the newspapers were saying essentially that Trump won, but uh, I think what the line was, but is the um, the obvious was winner isn't so obvious. In other and he painted a picture of the Antifa types kind of in this slumber in the streets, cold, haven't been moving for a long time, waiting on something to happen. In this case, you could presume something like the um, the decision of the courts to happen, and then the courts announced that it's Trump, you know, whatever, two weeks later. And then this, this eruption of the chaos happens after that. So he sort of painted the, the chaos picture explicitly as a Trump victory that the world wouldn't accept. Okay. So in order to get to that place, we have to get to the court place in which they do the right thing and determine that Trump is the winner, that he did win in more or less of a landslide, it appears. But in that case, you're going to have the percentage of people that will never believe anything unless CNN said it. It's not about intelligence. It's about the certain percentage of people that will always believe propaganda. And then, of course, the people that maybe even know it's a little bit of propaganda, but are just so angry because of being provoked by all the sort of stuff that's against them right now, right? Including probably spiritual stuff. Anyway, it all explodes in that case. 
Now, if UN uh, troops are on the ground as Dana Coverstone further dreamt and, and, and the shipping, the entire shipping of everything is down, there is no Christmas, basically. There is no commerce going on. It's just a total, complete chaos breakdown of society um, after that. That's, you know, a wait and see, see thing. Excuse me. But um, one thing I can tell you is that um, anything can happen at this point because of the nature of this thing. It's one little thing away from, I mean, a spark could be, I mean, I just saw on Twitter just a minute ago, like a, a, a fight that was breaking out between Antifa and Trump supporters in the streets. That little spark can happen any second. We could be in that tonight. Um, it, as soon as somebody starts spraying gunfire over or you know how this thing happens it could just immediately be like that and that happens in every city and now we're trying to deal with that if that happens of course here's the thing this has got a lot of moving parts in it it's not just about americans it's not certainly not about race or anything else that the media wants it to be about this is about the control of the world and it's about the necessary thing you have to take over America if you want to take over the world. And the best time to take over America is during a transition of power. If they don't think that they're going to get that power, they're going to take it over by some other means. And that probably means some X factor happening, some false flag event, some thing bad happening that, you know, I don't know. It could be anything. Or it could be just the, uh, the riots themselves. Or there could be no riots. I mean, here's the thing. I'm speaking as if there's no solution in which this isn't good. Okay? I mean, it could be a good... This is my, my greatest hope is that, you know, the conservatives who are the nice guys, the, the upstanding citizens for the most part in this thing, or at least the, the most of them are, we certainly have our radicals as well, but um, it's certainly overblown in the media. But for the most part, we might just be like, okay, let's accept this, accept this and let's fight it out in the Congress and let's make sure that we do all the things. And in that case, let me just say this about that, that scenario. I actually like it a little bit. Now I am a, uh, uh, as I said in the uh, uh, podcast with Alan, a, a kind of a fatalist, you know, whatever happens, I'm okay with, as long as it's happened, then I can be like, okay, well, that's obviously God's will in some sense. It's if God is sovereign, then that's what we work with. Right. I don't, ha I don't spend a single moment, uh, upset of a, at a thing that happened because I do believe that we get the, uh, the leaders that we deserve, he appoints them for us. We don't, we don't, uh, and if we are corrupt and everything else, then we get the corrupt leader as well. And, you know, you got to look at this stuff in context too. But my point with all this stuff is that um, I like on a political level, not, not putting so much trust in a president or whatever, I like the, the, because I think there's a tendency to feel like, well, he's taking care of it. It's not my job to do anything. From just speaking from a libertarian sort of, or libertarian leaning, uh, conservative type, 
it forces me to be a little more active in the political life when my guy isn't there, right? Because I, I have less of a tendency to think, oh, my guy's got it. He, you know, I did, we got him elected so we can all go back to sleep and, and politically or whatever. So that's good. But I think I even more am excited about uh, the transition. I feel like this transition would have happened in my heart either way, no matter who won, which is that I would have uh, transitioned to a much more spiritual life after this. I think you kind of have two choices, two, two roads to go in this situation. And the, the one place you can't go, and I would encourage you not to go, is to a place of bitterness. Have you ever known anybody that had their life ruined, got betrayed by somebody, a friend, that did something that just radically changed the direction of their life because of a betrayal? Um, you know, it's just, it's not just that you got betrayed. It's got you betrayed so bad that now your life is a different direction and a much worldly, less good direction. You could have had this great career and life and family if it weren't for that person doing that one thing. You know, what, what bitterness that engenders. And bitterness, as they say, is like taking poison and hoping somebody else dies. It just eats away at a life. And if you know anybody that has never given up on their bitterness, you know a, a shell of a person right? A person that has squandered everything that they could be in life because they wanted bitterness. As Jordan Peterson points out that anger actually has a component that makes you feel good. And I can't remember what he, some sort of endocrine situation. It's part of it is it makes you both feel bad and good at the same time. And I think bitterness is, is maybe got something that's special about that. And it's of course, righteous right in 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 this situation to be bitter about it they stole it though and what our country's at stake though and all these sort of rebuttals to that you don't understand this is the last chance america blah 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 look i get that and if it can be saved we should but you know try to put yourself in the bible and judah when you know obviously the northern tribes had already been taken away by uh you know assyria hooks in their jaws, literal hooks in their jaws as the survivors, which weren't that many, women and children mostly, were led away uh, with hooks in their jaws to a new land to be sold as slaves and done unspeakable things to God's people, right? Or well, they were the, ah, they were the northern ones. So, you know, it's okay. Take them away. They got taken away because they weren't very godly, right? You know, and then your Judah, you know, you got your, your, your Jeremiah saying, hey, no, and, and, and Isaiah saying, it's going to come for us too, guys, here in Judah. And it did as well. You go to Babylon as slaves and everybody else that fought got killed. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, isn't Israel the, the, the chosen nation? This doesn't make any sense. Why would God do this? I always thought, imagine in their minds, the utter impossibility. You can understand if, if you were being prophesied to by Jeremiah, you'd be like, Jeremiah, dude, we are the chosen nation. None of that is going to happen. Why would God completely destroy his chosen nation? That doesn't make any sense, Jeremiah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, uh, that if it is true that no matter what happens, I am not going to let any of this affect my heart. And I've, I've, you know, I was thinking today, sort of on topic here, if I had an, a year to live, what, what would I do differently? You know, how would that affect things? And it kind of actually ended up in an interesting place, uh, thought experiment wise, because 
in my case, I feel like I've done a lot of stuff in ministry. I feel like on the one hand, I have accomplished enough goals to say, well, I, d I wouldn't write that book I've always wanted to do or any kind of things like that. And I think that even if I did have that, the thing that I did land on would be the thing I would want to do in addition to that other thing, write a book or something and make a film in the year. And which is that I wanted to be at the end of that year as close to Jesus as I possibly could be to be like just a shining light of loving Jesus and just exceptionally excited to meet him at the end of that year. And the path to doing that is pretty much just summed up in the spiritual discipline, spending time with him. I know the path. The path is, um, you know, uh, reading the Bible, praying, loving, uh, resisting temptation, uh, just all the things that are part of the just normal spiritual disciplines that sort of build on one another. And then all of a sudden you start finding yourself thirsting for the word more. And it's actually a lot like that brought me to the thought of, well, what keeps people from doing that in the first place, which is, of course, the age-old question in Christianity. What keeps you from doing every sermon, basically, and, you know, uh, if you've ever been thinking during a sermon when the pastor was talking about, here's the problem, and you're like, well, what's the solution, pastor? And if he does give one, it's probably going to be something to the effect of pray, read your Bible, you know, resist temptation. It's going to be those spiritual disciplines. And it's not just anybody that knows what I'm talking about knows that when you are fighting that fight of, uh, the, of faith and, and doing the spiritual disciplines, it's not that you get points for it or are more acceptable by God for it, for, for those things. It just sort of starts to change your heart, that whole Jeremiah 31, 31 thing. And you, you become that new creation in Christ and your heart of flesh is, or stone is turned into a heart of flesh and you begin to love the things of God and it just sort of changes you. And God, of course, does that. But my point is, the reason people don't do it is because there's this sort of constant war. And it reminds me of that book, The War of Art, uh, not The Art of War by Sun Tzu, but The War of Art, which is a more recent book. And it's about the idea of creating things. And there's always resistance, this odd resistance to creation of things. If you are a writer or a painter or a or anything, a filmmaker or a podcaster, or if you create something out of nothing, if you ever look at a blank canvas or a blank sheet of paper or a blank timeline on Adobe Premiere, and you think, well, what am I going to do? Then you, it's the most painful thing to put those first words and to keep putting those other words and to keep doing it. It's just painful to, to slog through making art. There's almost like just resistance to it. To creation. And I feel like that's the same thing. And maybe for the same reason, which is you're creating this new, new man. And maybe that's the, what's happening in there as well. Anyway, just sort of a not well-defined thought, but all that to say is that kind of also, like I mentioned in the podcast with Alan Kirshner, is that I feel a lot like this election, whether who won or not, I was going to get real after it. I've spent, been spending far too much time worrying about things that are utterly useless in the long term. I mean, even if they do have some use, if I was sort of like a senator and could do something about this or do anything more than the bare minimum and vote and, you know, maybe tell people about it to whatever extent that's useful or something like that, whatever. 
I could do some things, but there's a lot of things I can't have any control over in that. But what I can is we've got a lot of problems happening right now. You know, take the election unrest out of the equation. We've got an unbelievable meltdown happening in uh, the, the economy, a runaway freight train that's destined to end in something like the, certainly the Great Depression, if not worse. And of course, we're not in a position to deal with a Great Depression for lots of reasons I've talked about before, but I think spiritually and, and people living in the cities and not the country and not having any of those skills and a whole lot of other things is going to make this a lot weirder. So we've got that. We're obviously in the middle of this coronavirus, uh, uh, some sort of grand psyop that whether real or promulgated, I'm sure it's real to and even probably getting realer, if that makes sense, as far as the uh, things that it can mutate or whatever, or a new thing can happen. But in any case, we're certainly being trained to be good global citizens as a result of it, which is all leading to the sort of great reset stuff. So we've got all of that stuff going on. We've got, as I've been saying for a while, this, this is going to come down to persecution one way or the other, whether it's persecution of conservatives, you know, for their conservative ideals or Christian ideals because of their intolerance or whatever. I certainly have felt the, that even before this, I mean, I can, I can see how my particular views are basically, uh, not long for this world, uh, uh, internet wise. I think I pretty much ranted out on that idea. I say the bottom line though, is that any minute unrest could spark with this. My advice to you is to be ready to get out of the city at the very least for this initial spark. Have some situational awareness, and that's the next thing I want to talk about. All right, just a quick note here I had around the term situational awareness, and what that means to me is two different things. I was just thinking about this today. One of them is I was out in town at Target, or, and, and I was doing some shopping, and I don't normally go out to the big city. It's, the Target is like three towns over, and and I was just seeing more people than I normally do. And it was important to me, I think, to realize and that, you know, what the majority of the other 50% of the world thinks about in terms of the pandemic and masks and the political situation and racism and all the stuff that has become part of the norm, the normal propaganda push that's happening on, on not just America, the entire world and the way that that media is sort of feeding these, these concepts to everybody. It's important to, to not deny that that's a reality in a lot of people's minds. You know, it's just so important. If you've never really watched a lot of CNN or watched uh, a feed that is all anti-Trump, you know, you don't ever see that on your feeds because you've curated your feed to be only the things that you, that agree with you. And that's part of what the social media does is it shows you things that you agree with and not things you don't agree with. And so we really don't in a lot of ways know what language that they're speaking. It's interesting to look at their feeds and stuff because you see stuff that you genuinely hadn't seen before. You know, you see some clips of compilations of Trump or something like that. You're like, wow, I've never seen that, you know? And so it's true what, what they say too, you know? We believe that they're completely brainwashed. And if they could only see the truth and, and we know that they're being brainwashed by CNN. And I actually think that's actually a lot more accurate uh, in their case. But, and their, but their view of us is exactly the same. In fact, it might be a little bit different. I heard a quote the other day, I don't remember who said it, that said, 
you'll never really understand politics until you understand that con the conservatives think the li liberals are stupid. The liberals think the conservatives are evil. You know, if you, if you really believed a lot of the stuff that they believed, it would be very difficult. If, I mean, I, I saw uh, somebody post on Twitter, what, the guy who uh, uh, founded the Babylon Bee was saying that he had a friend that just that day had found out for the first time that Trump really had actually denounced racism over and over again. He's like, how could you not not know that? Well, I mean, if you watch CNN, the person he was talking about was shocked and couldn't believe that she'd been lied to and all, all this other stuff. But in other words, if we, I, I, as a person who ingests so much conservative media, I start to sort of live in my own bubble and think that if, there's no way anybody can believe this stuff. And what I'm, it's important for me to realize that the world is being turned into because they do believe it first of all and they believe everything part of it even the stuff where we are all evil if we do x y and z and that brings me to the concept of masks in fact i think i was mostly couching this in the concept of masks it's important for me to wear a mask because of now what that's become you know we're living in a time when very quickly uh, these sort of definitions are changing in the same way that sort of language changes over time. We're kind of like in fast forward where, where masks don't just mean masks anymore. And they mean different things to different people at different times. And, and the situational awareness in that situation is you need to be able to adapt to those situations. I think it's a very biblical concept. Paul talking about meat sacrificed to idols or, or, or all the different things that he says, yes, we as Christians have liberty, but don't give an offense to people over something like that. Well, you know, Paul was saying about the circumcision thing, which he was extremely passionate about, obviously. That it got into a huge uh, thing with the apostle Peter about it, right? That you don't need to be circumcised. Yet he caused, what was it, Titus to get circumcised so that he could better minister to the, to the Jews. And of course, the meat sacrifice, the idol issue is like, look, if somebody's going to be, if somebody's going to be like a super legalist that's sitting around is like, I will never eat a piece of meat that's been sacrificed to idol. Then, then Paul's like, well, for that person, don't eat the meat sacrificed to him because you don't want to. And, and, and that person would be like, well, you know, just don't bring it up to that person because that person is immature and can't handle it. Right. And then of course you've got, uh, Jesus on the Mount of Olives, that whole concept of, uh, you know, if the Roman soldier, which is his right, tells a, a citizen or just a guy, hey, hey, carry my gear for a, a mile, Jesus says, go with him too. What, what would Jesus mean by that? Why would you do that? You're, you're only legally required to go with him one mile. Why two? Why, why shouldn't you say, look, I'm a Jew. God chose us Israelites to not be subservient to Romans. So you're not going to tell me, a Jew, to walk with you one mile. Carry your own stuff, my good sir. No, that Jesus says, go with him too. And, and of course, he goes into the... Uh, one cheek turn to him your other cheek he talks about if you're getting sued uh you know they're like here's my uh other stuff too you know or, or, or talks about making restitution with your brother and whatever all the net result of that is and of course romans 13 sort of and other places in 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 the epistles talk about what all that means in terms of how christians should live in, in, in governments that are evil and, and make bad, stupid laws and how that they deal with that. And as I say, it's kind of, it's kind of this changing target that we need to be very aware of. And what I kind of mean by that is so like, for me, not giving an offense with regard to masks in the reddest of red states that I'm in here, 
that means that at church, nobody wears masks. And it's kind of their little, nobody's kind of unspoken thing. Nobody wears a mask. And we take temperatures and stuff like that, which is whatever. But it is kind of a thing. You, you know, you see like a mask or two in church. But for the most part, nobody wears them. Um, also, at the hardware store around here, nobody wears masks. You can't, if you go into Ace Hardware in, in my town and you got a mask on, you are the outcast, you know. But yet you go just about anywhere else and everybody's got, got masks. And really it's starting to change a little bit. So, for example, in Walmart, which requires masks, now in our red state, about 50% of the people, I'd say about 50%, maybe a little less, let's say 40%, aren't wearing masks. And it's just not thought of. It's no, no fights have brought, broken out. It's just, it's just ha- the nature of where we are. And... I had a different opinion about this, and I, I think, so originally I was kind of thinking along the lines of the libertarian sort of idea that I wasn't wearing a mask at Walmart because I knew that it was maybe helping that one other person to to see it and say, oh, they're not wearing a mask, I don't have to wear my mask either, to help them sort of break that that chain of resistance and be like, I want to resist too. So I was thinking in my heart i was like helping people to 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 learn to resist because resistance is going to be a very important part of the future especially as they begin to you know not, obviously the next step is the vaccine stuff and then they're going to put us in gulags and the rest of it after that uh maybe a little further down the line but gulags are probably happening so but so i i you know my libertarian mind is is thinking resist now, my Christian mind is thinking, and I, my wife and I sort of, we'd never argue, but we sort of were having a disagreement about this. And and it's interesting because I don't know where to land on it anymore. It did change, that, that sort of argument did change my mind a little bit to make me lean more towards the side of not giving offense when absolutely possible. Like in most situations, I'm going to put on a mask just because, not because I want to put my head down and I don't want to be noticed, but because I don't want to be uh, called out for it just as a Christian, in the same way that the nature of Romans 13 is. Don't don't become a byword and an offense to the world because you're a Christian, because you have your rights and you have liberty, and therefore you should not have to do this thing and that thing and become a jerk because of that. No, um, you know, your your battles are much more significant than dealing with this little thing right now. Now, it's it's this is where it gets tricky because where does that line get drawn? You know, I agree with that, and I can't argue with that biblically. The, the idea that I should wear a mask when at all possible, but have the situational awareness because it's meaning different things to different people right now. So, for example, I went and helped my neighbor the other day cut down a tree, it fell in his yard, and all this stuff. And in that situation, definitely was not a mask situation. If I had worn a mask, it would have been a very weird situation or whatever. So it was being situationally aware that, that in that case was not the way to do that. Handshakes were in play, and that's the way that we did that. And it was very great and neighborly and wonderful. Me forcing him to tell, wear a mask or wearing a mask myself was not the way to do that situation. Um, however, anyway, the way I say it's it's fluid and changing and complicated because where do you draw the line? Because the same argument that I would make about, well, go with the Roman soldier two miles, is is that we, where do you stop at the vaccine then? I mean, and I guess the answer is, see, my wife was saying, well... Because I was, I brought up the vaccine to my wife. It's like, well, where do you draw the line? Because of, the same argument can be made if they make the vaccine the law, then. And she was like, well, no. In that case, it's going to be doing harm to your body or something like that. So you wouldn't do it in that case. 
And, you know, and I was like, well, we'll make the biblical argument for that. You know, I mean, just because it's going to do harm to your body or, I mean, anyway, my, I mean, there's no biblical argument that says, unless it does harm to your body, then I don't know. Maybe that is, maybe that's in there. I don't know. But the point is that we've got to draw lines and there's no real, I think maybe my takeaway from the mask situation is this. It's really, really not cool to be super one way or the other with the masks. You got to be a moderate when it comes to masks in this world. And I think anything else is just going to be weird. It's too fluid. It's too changing. There's too many different situations. There's too many different thoughts on it. And if you are, uh, and loving your enemies includes loving the people that, uh, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but that don't agree with your super hardcore position on masks. And if that's your only takeaway from this, then take that one. Love your not believing the same way about you mask people. All right. The final thing I wanted to talk about today is the Gog Magog war. And this was inspired by a tweet today from Jack Hibbs, who is a very popular pre-trib teacher. And he said this on Twitter. He said, students of Bible prophecy out there, we've never been this close to Ezekiel 38 happening. America is sorely distracted, vulnerable at this hour. This could be the time when Russia and Iran attacks Israel. They cannot gamble Trump being reelected, forcing them to wait four more years. That is just so, so discouraging to hear from somebody who has been put on a pedestal of the world in, in conservative, generally speaking, otherwise good doctrine uh, thing uh, as, and put on this pedestal. Uh, that position that, that he and many others like him hold, and it's not just pre-tribulationalists, but most pre-tribulationalists uh, believe that the Gog-Magog War happens at some point. Nobody knows when. You ask a pre-tribber when the Gog-Magog War happens, uh, they'll, they'll give you 150 different answers. But they do want it to be before the seven-year period begins. Now, that is, first of all, a position that is just out of nowhere. I think Hal Lindsey may have even came up with the idea. I'm not sure. But it certainly had a lot to do with the Cold War at the time. Russia was being very involved. I think uh, uh, at the very least, nobody really thinks it's Russia out there, except for the people that have maybe not done a study on it. Um, for example, I, I, I always point people to J. Paul Tanner's ta uh, paper, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, Rethinking Ezekiel 38 and 39, do we owe Russia an apology? That's just a simple uh, study of Daniel 11 that basically says, look, you can't call the king of the north Russia if throughout the entire chapter it's Assyria. Nobody does that. It's just not, it's not a way you do Bible prophecy. The reason Hal Lindsey did it is because he was in the middle of the Cold War and thought that Russia was the big baddie of the day. It's just the old thing I always say is like Christians in every generation will never budge on the fact that Whatever's happened in the newspapers is definitely the end times, but they are willing to budge on whatever the Bible says. And that's just where that came from. The idea that it, it comes before the 70th week of Daniel, it's just an untenable idea. Why do I say that? Well, first, you, whatever you're doing with the Bible, uh, with the Gog Magog War timing-wise, you have to first, this is your starting text is Revelation 20, verse 7, because that's the place where John tells you when it is in relationship to the end time scenario. He says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. And he goes through the whole thing. They go against Israel, God destroys them, etc. Now we see that same 
mention of Gog Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. It's really the same story. It just takes two chapters to, uh, to culminate in which Gog Magog go out, deceive the nations, go attack Israel. God destroys them. And God glorifies himself in that destruction. So what I want to do is go through the reasons why the position that the Gog Magog war is before the seven-year period is the weakest possible position on the, on, on the timing of the Gog Magog war. I think there are better positions. Uh, uh, Joel Richardson, and he has the view, and I, I wrote this in my book, what I'm about to read, uh, uh, read to you, um, kind of as, as a response to Joel Richardson's view. And I think he's got a much more logical view, which is that the Gog Magog war is the same thing as the Battle of Armageddon. Now, I like that a little bit because my position is that the Battle of Armageddon is kind of like the Gog Magog War in that it's a type, it's a typological prefiguration of the Gog Magog War that John tells us will happen at the end of the millennium. But there are some similarities to what happens in the Gog Magog War in Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20 and what we see in Revelation 19 uh, with, the, with Armageddon. Enough for me to say that's not it. But it certainly looks like it. The actual fulfillment of it happens a thousand years later. But so I'm willing to say that it's a typological prefiguration. There's no Gog involved in that. Uh, now, Joel Richardson would say that he believes that there is. I mean, he out of he believes that the guy's name is Gog and all this stuff, which I say he's got problems there. And I go through that in the book. I mean, number one, if Gog is the Antichrist, then what in the world is he doing in the middle of? of uh, the millennium after the thousand years have expired because a guy named Gog can't be the Antichrist there because the Antichrist has been in the pit of hell for two, for a thousand years at that point. So whatever Gog is in Revelation 20, it ain't the Antichrist because uh, he has been in the pit for a thousand years. And Satan is eventually tossed in that pit too. But anyway, so I'm going to go through the reasons why this this early idea that is should be completely tossed out, but apparently Jack Hibbs still holds to it, that the, the Gog-Magog war is pre-70th week of Daniel uh, is untenable. Problem number one, Ezekiel 39.7 says that Yahweh's name is never to be profaned again after the end of the Gog-Magog war. Um, I'll just read from Ezekiel 39.7. Uh, it says, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. And this in context is, is the end of the Gog Magog War. In fact, so much of the book of Revelation or book of Ezekiel with regard to the Gog Magog War is saying that this war happens for the explicit purpose of showing everybody who God is. And, this, and from that moment on, it will never be the same. That's sort of a summation of what the Gog Magog War is in Ezekiel. And there's so much language about what will never happen again now that that has happened. And none of that makes sense unless the Gog Magog War is the war that happens at the end of the thousand years, right before the eternal kingdom. And let me explain some more uh, issues with that. So, so I continue with that concept saying that the 70th week of Daniel, the time of the Antichrist, is characterized by blasphemy and rebellion against God, both on the part of the Antichrist, who is particularly blasphemous, and those who follow him. For, exa for example, scripture says that people will, quote, blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. Also see Revelation 17, 3, 13, 6, and 16, 9 through 11. 
the people in Israel rejoice at the deaths of the two witnesses, Revelation 11.10, which doesn't sound like people who are finished with rebellion against God. If the Gog-Magog war occurs before the 70th week of Daniel, then we need to explain how the blasphemy and rebellion by the Antichrist and the people of the earth in the end times do not constitute a defiling of God's name. The problem is insurmountable, in my opinion. Problem number two is that the nations will recognize the sovereignty of God as a result of the Gog-Magog war. And so Ezekiel 38, 16, for example, says, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may acknowledge me. And when before their eyes, I magnify myself. Uh, verse 23, I will exalt my and magnify myself. I will reveal myself before many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, Ezekiel 38, 7. So the nations are explicitly in rebellion against God throughout the 70th week of Daniel, Revelation 11, 2, 18, 3, 16, 14. So if God says that, look, you are, the nations are, are going to recognize the sovereignty of God after the end of the Gog Magog Wars, so is going to be this awesome, glorious thing. And yet we know that if there's a big problem with that if you put the Gog and Magog war before the 70th week of Daniel, because during the 70th week of Daniel, the nations are explicitly against God. In fact, it seems that the kings of the earth, quote unquote, or, who are gathered to battle against Christ at Armageddon, include all or most of the nations on the earth. So we would need to explain how that uh, minor contradiction is re reconciled. Number three, same basic thing, except with Israel. Israel also recognized the Lord's sovereignty in totality. And speaking specifically of the northern and southern kingdoms in context, uh, after Gog Magog. And there's a lot of language about this, Ezekiel 39, 22. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Very strong language there. From that day forward, from the conclusion of God saving Israel from Gog Magog and destroying all those armies, from that day forward, the house of Israel shall know that I am their Lord. The salvation of Israel, however, in mass cannot happen before the conclusion of the 70th week of Daniel. The whole point of the 70th week prophecy is that the entirety of the 70 weeks, including the last seven years, needs to be completed before the salvation of Israel will occur. And you can read Daniel 9.24, that's what it's all about. 70 weeks are determined for your people in your holy city to finish transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy. This also violates the purpose of the time of Jacob's trouble, which is a purifying event for the Jews during the last half of the final seven-year period, culminating in their repentance and recognition of God. They will not completely be saved until after this purification event is completed. Number four, the biggest problem probably with the idea of the uh, 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 pre-70th week Gog-Magog war view is just so consistent throughout the entire book. I didn't even... Here's some phrases, phrases like, quote, dwelling securely or dwelling in a land that has undergone the, a restoration from the sword or a land of unwalled villages or peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. I could go on. All are inconsistent with Israel's current geopolitical situation for the foreseeable future. Nor could anyone argue that this is some kind of false security brokered by the Antichrist since that event isn't supposed to occur during the first day of the 70th week, okay? So people that take this view, they know they got all kinds of problems with it, but they like to say when they run into this one, well, hey, Israel isn't dwelling securely. It's certainly not in the way it's described there in Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
uh, and they'll say, oh, well, yeah, I was talking about when the Antichrist comes, he, he's going to make a false peace. Well, no, if you're saying that this happens before the 70th week, the covenant that he makes with many that lasts for seven years, that lasts for seven years. It happens at the beginning of the seven-year period, right at the very day of that beginning, right? So you can't have them dwelling securely before it even begins, before he's even made the peace agreement. So uh, anybody that's ever said that to you, please call them out on that. It's just an obvious flaw. But I would submit to you, when does this make sense? Of course, it makes sense if John was correct uh, when he said that the Gog Magog war would occur at the end, when the thousand years have been completed, Satan will be released from the pit that he'd been in for a thousand years. He goes and deceives the nations, gathers together this great army, Gog Magog, that come against Israel. Uh, well, and that also makes sense of some odd problems in Isaiah. For example, beating plowshares back into swords. I mean, we all know the part where you beat swords into plowshares. You no longer need your swords and swords going into the millennium, the eternal, or not the eternal, but the, the, the uh, time with uh, the, the millennium because of the great peace there. So you beat your swords into plowshares. But what's all this beating those plowshares back into swords about? Well, it's this war at the end of the th that great peace period, which of course makes these phrases like dwelling securely, a land undergone a restoration from the sword, a land of unwalled villages, peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls. And I should point out that these people remain peaceful, that God destroys this army. Some people will say, when trying to deal with this, that, uh, well, John in Revelation 20, verse 7, says that this army, Gog Magog, will come from four corners of the earth. And Ezekiel, you know, says it's going to be, you know, the king of the north and, you know, it's going to name some specific nations in there. So how are you going to deal with that? And please understand, that's not a contradiction. That is one person speaking in summary, one giving specifics. The reason that Ezekiel says, hey, look, it's going to be Assyria, it's going to be Egypt, it's going to be the Sudan, it's going to name all these countries. Well, look at a map. Those are what the Bible calls the four corners of the earth. These nations, it, John just says it in summary. It's certainly not excluding one. Oh, it can't be the four corners of the earth because over here in Ezekiel, he names the countries. What? That doesn't even make sense. But it shows you how bankrupt this concept is. I don't even know. I honestly can't tell you what even their argument for making it before the seven-year period is because I know it's not in the text anywhere, right? So what is their... I, I honestly, They must have something. They can't just not have anything. But I would say, and I don't know if I've mentioned this before because I've been recording this a couple times, but... Um, I'll edit it out if it is, but but a lot of people will say that there are two Gog Magog wars because they recognize the insurmountable nature of John uh, in Revelation 20 verse 7, where he says, look, a guy named Gog, a guy named Magog, after the millennium is, is done, they are going to go to war against Israel and are going to be destroyed by God. Essentially the exact same thing that Ezekiel says. So a lot of people will say, well, yeah, there's another Gog and there's another Magog and they can do the same basic thing, but they do it over here at the end of the millennium. But we still get to keep our pre-millennial or pre-70th week one out of nowhere. Like, well, can we just have two then? Because we know that I'm right. So let's just have two and you get to keep the one that's explicitly talked about in the Bible, and I get to have this one that I made up because I like it. I honestly think that the reason that the pre-tribbers like the pre-70th week Gog Magog is so they, so they can have some fun before they, they're raptured. You know, oh, we want to have a reason to have prophecy shows too. Uh, we want to, you know, we're not going to see the Antichrist and we're not going to see anything else, but maybe we can see Gog Magog. I honestly believe that it's almost like 
a reason to have a pro prophecy conference for them because there's no, nothing else ostensibly that they should be looking for or watching for if their whole thing is, is scheme is correct. So I, I feel like somebody just said one day, well, I mean, the Gog Magog war, that could be a thing. And nobody, and they got so excited about it. They never asked, uh, well, like why? All right. I'm getting a little salty here. I can tell I've been talking for too long, too many takes, uh, this podcast. So I'll wrap it up here. Thanks for watching. Go to BibleProphecyTalk.com. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to it. Uh, and thanks. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.